Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. If you've been following the Brexit situation, you've probably heard the term Irish backstop. It's this giant political knot at the center of the Brexit negotiations between Britain and the EU, and honestly, it's so hard to untangle that people kind of skip past it when they're talking about Brexit. But not today. Today, we are untangling the Irish backstop for you all. We're going to get into it. We also want to untangle other things that confuse you about Brexit, so stick around. Uh, After the episode, we're going to ask you guys to come up with questions that you have about Brexit? What confuses you? And we might do some follow-up episodes on one of your questions. In the meantime, welcome to Worldly on the Vox Media Podcast Network. As you can hear, it's me, Zach Beecham, and Jen Williams is back this week. Hi. We've also got Jen Kirby, one of our foreign and national security reporters, standing in for Alex Ward. Hello. How are you? Good. Jen, it's a little confusing that there's two Jens, so I'm going to just call you Kirby for the whole episode. Is Is that okay? That's perfect. And in keeping with the Irish theme, I think. Kirby, we have you on because you wrote a super detailed, thoughtful explainer of the backstop, and we want you to start us off, but like with the basics. When we talk about Ireland, we're not just talking about one thing, right? Like explain Ireland in the, the really basic level for our listeners. <laughs> no, it makes sense. We often refer to Ireland as one thing, but there's an actual island of Ireland and it's split in two. There's the Republic of Ireland on the southern half, which is where the capital is Dublin, and that's an independent country, and it's an EU member state. And then you have Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and that is part of the UK, and that is currently an EU member state. But now that the United Kingdom is going through this process known as Brexit, it's leaving along with the rest of the United Kingdom from the European Union. Right. So just so you can kind of picture it, there's this island that's like off to the left of, you know, the UK. And there's this border running right smack between these two Irelands, the Republic of Ireland in the south and Northern Ireland in, well, the north. Like you said, up until now, the UK and Northern Ireland together have been part of the EU. So that border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, which is also in the EU, has been super open. Part of the deal of being in the EU is like open borders, like people can cross over without having to go through like the normal border checks you would if you're going to a different country. Goods, people can kind of move across this border. But like you said, now that the UK is trying to leave, it's suddenly really complicated because what the hell do they do with that border now? So to understand why this border is so fraught and so complicated and and really where it came from, how Ireland got split into two parts, we need to dive into the history of British-Irish relations. Uh, And this is long and complicated, but I think the place that we should start is around the 1920s. And that's where this border, like, was formed. That's where this came from. That's when this thing happened. Right. At, At that point, after a long history of British colonization of Ireland, essentially, you had 
two different political constituencies inside Ireland. You had people who were okay with being part of the UK, and you had people who were definitely not okay with being part of the UK. And now this is a broad generalization, but there tended to be a split on religious lines with Protestants in Ireland more favorable to Britain and Catholics in Ireland, the overall majority, more hostile to the idea of being controlled by Britain. So this led to a kind of partition scenario surrounding Irish independence. Right. The British government tried to split the island of Ireland along those lines. They figured, let's just kind of separate the two groups and the group that is closer to the UK will be on one side and then the Irish will be on the other. And the idea was not necessarily to have Ireland be an independent country, but that's eventually what came about. And the South became the free state of Ireland in 1922. And the Northern Ireland remained a part of the UK. And so after that part in time, those two entities were basically split with the Ireland in the South, the independent country, and Northern Ireland as part of the UK. Yeah. And so you're going to hear us like throughout this episode say Ireland. And when we just say Ireland, we pretty much always mean the Republic of Ireland, meaning the southern part that's its own country. When we say Northern Ireland, we mean the part that is part of the UK and is not its own independent country. So just so you guys are clear and you can follow along, we'll try to make sure that it's super clear, but that's where we are. So yeah, so there's all this unrest. The UK comes in and says, all right, fine. You guys down in the south, you do you. Here's this border. We're splitting you guys up. This northern chunk... Y'all can stay with us. We're cool. So, right, problem solved? Not so much. No, no, not, not at all. Not, not problem solved. Um, Which brings us to roughly the 1960s. And around that time, the Protestants in Northern Ireland generally enjoy a favored position because they're part of the UK and, and more favorable to it. The Catholics are a minority and feel discriminated against in Northern Ireland. They begin protesting, and it starts peacefully, but the British military comes in. It is fairly repressive. There are riots on the part of the Catholics, and I don't want to take sides as to who is right and who caused the violence and so on. It's quite complicated, and I don't want to disentangle that here. All that's important for you to understand right now is that things got Violent. Yes. Um, this basically kicks off the period that we refer to as the Troubles, which started roughly the late 1960s and lasted until 1998. But to kind of just back up a little bit, the reality is Northern Ireland was extremely divided between Protestants who favored staying part of the United Kingdom and Catholics who tended to favor a Northern Ireland. Now, the majority of the population didn't engage in violence, but these paramilitary groups sprang up that were advocating for their kind of extreme goals. So you have the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, which was fighting for a united Ireland, and they would do bombing and terrorist attacks. And in response, you have paramilitary groups who favored you know, the union with the United Kingdom, who would also wage attacks and fight in response. So you have these two paramilitary groups fighting back and forth, and this is unleashing decades of violence, which was extremely bloody, particularly in the 1970s. So talk to me about how the border fits into this specifically. 
Because the IRA and groups like that were fighting for a united Ireland, the border became a target. It was a symbol of the division between the two Irelands, so to speak. So you had groups waging attacks against checkpoints, and slowly over time, it became more and more militarized. And so that also became a symbol of the split of the division between Northern Ireland and Ireland. At the same time, the British military were afraid that these rebel groups were trying to use Ireland as a safe haven. So they had to destroy bridges and crossings to keep as much control as possible. So it really became the very visceral and visible sign of what was tearing apart the society in Northern Ireland. Right. So just to paint the picture here, we're now, you know, in this period of violent civil war, basically inside Northern Ireland. There's this really hard militarized border with checkpoints and watchtowers and soldiers with guns who are getting attacked on on all sides. For for those of you who don't know the history very well, it was compared frequently at the time to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Right. This is a very hardcore border, again, that's like both symbolic but also a literal hard border that was the target of terrorist attacks and violence. So we have this whole huge violent thing happening for decades. And the population is super polarized. Kirby, as you mentioned in your explainer, this wasn't like the whole country fighting each other, right? These are mostly these smaller paramilitary groups that were doing the violence. But the civilians who were trying to go about their lives tended to ally with one side or the other. And they weren't doing violence, but they were the ones getting killed in the violence, right? Because that's what terrorism and civil war does. So this goes on for a really long time. Flash forward to the 1990s, and it finally comes to an end. So this was the the culmination of a long process of negotiation between Britain and the IRA and its political faction. And the agreement, which eventually was concluded in 1998, was called the Good Friday Agreement. Now, the border was was a part of the agreement, right? Yeah, so basically— in part of doing this peace process, they had to make it kind of as seamless as possible for people who lived in Northern Ireland and identified more closely with Ireland to be able to cross back and forth. And this idea of cross-border cooperation was a huge pillar of the agreement. The goal was to have almost an invisible border and that's kind of what is there today. It took a while for all the checkpoints and things to come down, but this was really about not only bringing peace to Northern Ireland, but improving the relationship between Northern Ireland and Ireland, and also between the United Kingdom and Ireland itself. So all of those pieces were brought into the Good Friday Agreement. And because both the United Kingdom and Ireland were part of the European Union, this basically created the foundation to have transition to that open border and help bring down the barriers between all of those entities. Right, because like we said earlier, EU member countries don't have to have hardcore borders and checks for people and goods to move across. So it was like, oh, cool, well, we're all in the EU together. We don't even need this border anymore. And that becomes like this foundation that is like at the center of the identity of what this peace process represented. This peace process didn't fix everything, right? There's still a lot of tensions, but people do start to think, okay, we can start to move on and rebuild To the point that people like a guy named Jerry Adams, who is the head of Sinn Féin, who is like basically the political arm of the IRA, he basically directed, most people think, a whole lot of the terror attacks that the IRA carried out, even though you can't maybe technically prove it, even though everyone you talk to is like, yeah, no, he totally did. 
this guy was not necessarily seen as the greatest guy by a lot of factions, even as a terrorist by some people. This guy now is a legitimate member of the political establishment in Northern Ireland to the point that he actually is coming out with a cookbook that is basically about his time in prison. And it's like the IRA terrorist cookbook. That gives you a sense of like how much people have at least wanted and tried to kind of move forward and, and move past this period of chaos and, and trouble. But now that's being threatened. Right. That's the issue with reopening the Good Friday Agreement and the things that are important to it. And after the break, we're going to explain how Brexit threatens to undo this. Hey, welcome back. So now we're going to go from the past to the present. Well, I guess 2016, when Britain shockingly decided to vote its way out of the European Union. And everyone has spent the past few years trying to figure out what to do about that. And one of the key sticking points has been this Irish border situation we've been discussing. Right. As part of the United Kingdom leaving the EU, they are basically like, hey, we want to have all of these different regulations from the EU regulations. We want to be able to make our own trade deals and we want to be able to control our borders and be able to control immigration and things like that. But part of leaving and doing that makes it the Irish border even more complicated because then what are you going to do about the goods on the border and customs checks? So that's how the Irish border comes back into the whole situation. Right. Like, so you have this border, like we've been saying, that's like been open as part of this peace agreement. And there are basically two big possibilities. And the one is like, here's what could happen if that hard border goes back up. Right, which is what's going to happen on March 29th, again, if there isn't some kind of alternative arrangement set up. And what happens then is all the border checks snap into place that we've just been discussing. And, and what I'm trying to understand and grappling with a little bit is why this would be so upsetting for people inside both Ireland and Northern Ireland. Like, why would this create so much instability and fears of returns to the troubles? Right, That's, that's a question. I'm sort of genuinely unsure. So, I mean, that is a question that I had as well when I first started figuring this out because we do this lazy thing where we say, oh, we can, you know, exacerbate tensions again. But basically, if you have a customs check on a border, right, sure, you wait in line, you show that you have like a cow and everything is fine. But in some way, shape or form, you're going to have to put physical infrastructure. And as Jen had mentioned before, a lot of people bought into the peace process in Northern Ireland and the Good Friday Agreement, but not everyone. And there are fringe groups that still exist. And right now they don't have a lot of oxygen. They kind of operate on the fringes. But once you put some sort of physical check on the border, that immediately becomes a target, just like it was during the Troubles. And even if it's technology like a video camera or a sensor or even a drone, that could easily get vandalized. Now, what do you have to do to protect that from getting vandalized? Well, maybe you'll have to put a guard. Now, what if that guard becomes a target? And all of a sudden, you could see a situation which you have an innocuous border check suddenly spirals out of control. And that really is everyone's biggest fear. And they don't have a good answer on how to address it right now. Got it. So the concern isn't that people get, you know, just start protesting randomly on the street, that it's like sort of a political immediate thing. It's that there's a a cycle of violence or, or spiraling that could produce the same kind of tensions that we saw prior to 1998. Absolutely. And it's also a bit psychological as well. I mean, the border is really invisible in some cases. The actual length of the border between 
Ireland and Northern Ireland is about 500 kilometers. And a lot of them are back roads and country roads and things like that. So people are really used to being able to just travel back and forth and not really think about it for work to visit family and friends. And all of a sudden, there's might be a check or surveillance. And that psychologically is also really troubling, I think. Yeah, Jen, you had this really great detail from someone you talked to in your piece, which will be going up on Vox.com soon. This guy you're talking to basically explains how invisible this border is. Like, literally, when you cross the border, sometimes the only time you can tell whether you're in Northern Ireland or Ireland is by, like, how the pavement on the road feels or the color of it, because each side repaves the road on, like, different schedules. So if the road's, like, it's gravelier on one side, you're like, oh, I think I might have just crossed the border. And that's literally, like, the only way that they can tell. And I found that detail just really stunning. Like, that's how invisible this border really is, which is why having checkpoints, having watchtowers, having, you know, even a fence, like, is this big deal to so many people? People generally don't like border walls um, as a rule. So we may have learned (laughs) under certain circumstances. So so basically everyone's really concerned about where this could lead and to avoid the need for walls or anything like that, they're trying to negotiate something called a backstop. The Irish backstop. Right. This phrase that everyone keeps saying and nobody fucking stops to explain it. So Jen, what is the Irish backstop, dear God? Oh, God. Well, the Irish backstop is many things to many different people, <laughs> but it's an insurance policy. It's They also call it the protocol, um, but it's an insurance policy to make sure that whatever happens after the UK leaves the European Union, that the Irish border will remain open. Basically, everybody wants this. They just can't figure out exactly how to do it. So they're like, look, we're going to put in this insurance policy that says, yeah, we haven't quite figured it out yet. But we pinky swear, extra super pinky promise, no matter what we end up deciding, it's not going to be a hard border. We pinky promise. Right, but there's actually an enforcement mechanism, and that's what makes it super controversial. The UK wants to be free of EU regulations when it comes to trade and migration. But in order to prevent a hard border from coming up on the Ireland-Northern Ireland border— you kind of need to have UK regulations and especially Northern Irish regulations be in line with EU ones when it comes to imports, exports, stuff like that. So the backstop says that if they can't come to a deal about the Irish border, then the UK will not be able to have full independence from EU regulations and will have to be in line with some of them in order to keep the Irish border open. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. So basically what this would look like in practice is say you wanted to bring your butter from Northern Ireland to Ireland. Um, If you weren't on the same regulations, you would need a customs check. So by keeping everyone following the same regulations, then you could bring your butter from Northern Ireland to Ireland or Ireland to Northern Ireland. And since you already know everyone's following the same rules, you don't need a customs check. And that's really what the backstop is designed to do. Right. So the problem is that the hardcore Brexit supporters inside the UK could not accept that as a permanent state of affairs. In their view, that would be tantamount to giving up on the point of Brexit, which is securing independence from EU regulations. Regulations. Yeah. So that is why members of Theresa May's own conservative party voted down the deal. So what happens, the Irish border issue 
torpedoed the entire Brexit deal, right? Like all of it, all of these complex negotiations, months, years really of work went down in flames because nobody could figure out how to handle this very delicate situation on the Ireland-Northern Irish border. So that leaves us kind of where we are now, which is a little more than a month away from the March 29th Brexit deadline with no Brexit deal in place. So basically what happened after May's deal was defeated, and it was defeated by an historic amount, she basically said, hey, we'll try to get some assurances that the Irish backstop won't go into place, yada, yada, yada. But what happened at the end of January was Parliament, speared by her conservative party, so her members of her own party, voted to send her back to the European Union to renegotiate the backstop. And Europe was like, there is no way we are renegotiating this backstop. They're basically like, this deal is final and you're either going to take it or you're going to leave it. May is insisting that they're going to keep talking. And the EU is like, listen, we already told you, we're not going to change the backstop. So this is kind of where we are now. So she's seriously stuck between like a rock and a hard place. We've got a month and a half until the deadline happens. And if it does, if we hit the Brexit deadline, this hard border happens, right? It is, that is what occurs. And then all of the nightmare scenarios that we were describing earlier become possible. All of this negotiation was a mess. In addition to all of the other bad consequences. That we've talked about on previous episodes of the the Brexit catastrophe scenarios. So it's just like, it's a disaster. It's a, it's this eminently predictable disaster that everybody knows is bad, but nobody can figure out a way to solve it, and we're really running up against the clock here. Well, there is a way to solve it, <laughs> and that would be Theresa May, uh, or more, more specifically, her party recognizing that the Brexit of butterflies and unicorns that they promised just doesn't exist, and having to adjust those red lines and potentially accepting a customs union or basically agreeing to have the regulations after Brexit. And right now that hasn't happened, but that might be the only thing that could avert like a no deal scenario is Theresa May adjusting her kind of red lines that she set early on in these negotiations. Right. And so like, the running out the clock, a lot of people think that's essentially what she's trying to force everybody to do is like, look, I'm just going to not address this or or like not really get any movement on either side. I'm going to run out the clock until my party and literally everyone else has no choice but to just sign up for this deal because it's that or literally chaos. It's So that's where we are. I don't know. I'm a little skeptical because that, uh, what that depends on is the core hardcore Brexiteers acting rationally and that has never happened over the course of this process. So things We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Look, look, we, we gotta leave you there for this week, but it's really important that you send us in your questions about Brexit, parts of the process you don't understand, parts of the overall political situation you don't understand. Email us at worldly at vox.com because we're gonna be focusing a lot on this issue in the run-up to the March 29th deadline because it's super important and super hard to understand. And we really, really just wanna get into it and talk about it in some real depth. So send us your questions. We we may not be able to address them on the show, but we'll try our best. Now, thanks to our producer, Bird Pinkerton, who stitches together all of these great episodes. Thanks to Jen Kirby, also known as just Kirby or Jen, depending on who is speaking in this episode. Or JK. She's great. You should definitely read her explainer. You're welcome. <laughs> well, we'll have you we'll have you on in the future more, I'm sure. But look, one more thing. 
Uh, before we go, I have to issue a correction on last week. I was undercaffeinated last week, and I said former Soviet when referring to Macedonia when I meant to say former communist. Macedonia, of course, was part of Yugoslavia, which was not a Soviet state, but rather an independent communist country. I'm sorry about that. Thanks to listeners who pointed that out. Next time, I will make sure to overcaffeinate before episodes. <laughs>